0: As some of you may know, my son, Zach, enjoys playing sports quite a bit, whether that's throwing the baseball around or the football around the backyard Uh, with his friend. You'll usually find him on afternoons uh, out back playing some sort of sports with his buddy. And the other day, uh, we were standing outside in the driveway and I think we were barbecuing or something, and all of a sudden we heard a loud sound and a a yell and a scream. And then Zach came running around the corner of the house from the backyard with what looked like blood all over his hands. And we said, Zach, what's the matter? Well, Zach had been playing uh, with his friend with his new Halloween mask, which would shoot this red liquid that looked like blood up through the mask, and then it would come down the face, and it was very intimidating scary looking mask and apparently in midst of playing with it accidentally uh, the cord broke or the tube broke and this blood looking substance came all, all over the place on his hands and his shirt and his face and the ground around him but if you didn't know any better, you'd swear it looked like blood. You'd swear it looked like Zach was running from the backyard to the front after he'd been playing with his friend, and it looked like he had blood all over his hands. Now, in this case, it was an accident that he had this blood-looking stuff on his hands. But if it had been a real accident, of course... He still would have had that blood in his hands. He still would have had that look of guilt. And that's the, that's the way in which we are to approach this passage here of the cities of refuge. Because of what you see here is an image standing behind chapter 20 of this individual running toward the city of refuge with blood on his hands. And though it was accidental blood, it was still real blood. And so God, in his providence and in his mercy, established in the law that there would be a place to go for people when they accidentally shed blood and had blood on their hands, that they could go and they could find refuge, that they didn't have to suffer the penalty, which was normally due to somebody who killed a fellow Israelite. As we turn to our chapter this morning, we notice, first of all, that those cities were cities of the Levites. Look with me at chapter 21 and we'll work our way backwards into the cities of refuge which are spelled out for us in chapter 20. But I want us to notice that these cities of refuge are intertwined with and are a broader part of the Levitical inheritance. You see here that the Levites uh, come to the sons of Israel, to the leaders, particularly to Eliezer the priest and to Joshua, as also the heads of the households of the tribes of Israel, and they said at Shiloh, which was the sanctuary was, they said to them, the Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with pasture for lands for our cattle. And notice here that uh, the Levites come and they claim A command. They claim a command of God, and that command of God is Numbers chapter 35, verses 2 and 3, where the law said, command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possessions cities to live in, and you shall give the Levites pasture land around these cities. This was the provision of the Lord for the tribe of Levi. Levi was not granted uh, land or territory within the land of Canaan, they were given specifically cities to live in that would be contributed to them by the rest of the tribes. And so here at the end of the distribution, the divvying up of the land of the various tribes, finally Levi comes before Joshua as he has been uh, giving the land out by law, and they say, hey, we still have our inheritance, and our inheritance is important to us, and it's the cities. And so what you find in chapter 21 is that the Levites are granted 48 cities in total, of which six are to be cities of refuge. And so they come to claim their cities. And secondly, you notice in verse 2 that they came to claim their pasture lands. If you were to read through Numbers 35, you would notice it was not just cities, but it was pasture lands, and the dimensions of the pasture land are also given there. Outside of every city that was to be granted to the Levites, approximately five football fields in length from north to south to east to west was given to the Levites for pasture land. And so they come to claim their cities, they come to claim their pasture lands, and one other portion of the inheritance, which they were to receive, which is spelled out not in chapter 20 or 21, but in Joshua 13, were tithes. We're told in Joshua 13, for instance, that Israel did not receive an inheritance because their inheritance was the Lord. And what that meant was that they were to receive all of the tithes that were given and offered to the Lord in Israel. In other words, what God did here as he sets up his people within the land, he also sets up within the land a paid priesthood to minister to the people of God. The Levites were not to be shortchanged. The Levites, as the ministers of God's people, were to receive an adequate means of sustenance. They were to receive adequate provision for their needs in return for their service at the tabernacle and also as the teachers of Israel. And so what we have here is a picture of Levi coming to the tribes and the heads of Israel, claiming their inheritance, and then as you read through 21, you see that basically the tribes uh, divvied up uh, cities according to how they've been blessed, and most of the tribes gave four cities to the Levites, but Judah gave nine. The other thing, if you were to read through chapter 21 with a map in your hand, you would notice... As you looked at it, and every time you put a dot on that map within the land of Palestine, you would notice that the Levites were stationed all throughout the land. They are concentrated in the southwest or the southeast corner or the north or the middle of the wilderness or the desert somewhere. As you look at a map, and every time you read a city and you put a dot on the map, you would find that that map would look like it was just speckled with dots. And the point of it is that they were saturated throughout the land. They were scattered throughout the land. And and one scholar, Dr. Hugenberger, reasons that the purpose behind what that was so that the priests would be able to better teach the people of Israel the law. Dr. Hugenberger says the purpose of the allotment of these cities was surely related to the special Levitical ministry of covenant teaching among the twelve tribes. In other words, the principle that the Lord states here, that the Lord sets up and puts into practice in Joshua 21, as the cities are being distributed, is the incarnational principle. That these priests have been charged with the ministry of the word throughout Israel and the ministry of the sacraments, and so God strategically stations the priests among the people so he can teach them the law. Well, what else is that but the principle that Jesus uh, lived by in his earthly ministry? It's the with them principle. Jesus was with the people that he intended to reach. You have to be with them in order to win them. And, and, And God sets up that pattern all the way back in the law so that the priests would be with the people that they were intended to preach the law to. We see a model in this of what the church is supposed to be then, and how the church is to go about to minister the word to the world. The church is to be with the people that they're supposed to reach. There's something radically wrong with the idea that church should be looked at as a place of retreat. As a city of refuge, as it were. A walled fortress which keeps people out. We see in the distribution of the city is just how it should be with the church, that the church should go into the population, it should go where the people are, and it should uh, live among them as salt and light. Yet too often what we see in conservative circles is that we tend to build churches in uh, rural areas where few people are, (laughs) Some of that is providential, of course, because of the way that uh, the church has developed within the history of the United States. And surely there's nothing wrong with building churches where people are, if they are in rural areas. Surely there's nothing wrong with ministering to God's people there. But the church really ought to aim at, in its practice, the same principle, which is evidenced here in Joshua 21, in terms of the distribution of the priests throughout the land. And that is that we are to be where the people are, so that we can reach them with the word. And that's exactly what the church should do when it aims at reaching people where they are. It should set up churches that encourage people within them to go out into the cities where they live and live among the people they're trying to reach. There's something radically wrong with simply only targeting rural areas, but there's also something radically wrong with setting up churches within cities and then having people never leave the churches to go out into the world. It's a problem when churches are all about Christian activities and they never branch outside of the Christian activities, the Christian youth leagues, the Christian uh, institutions that never go into the cities in which they live. And so this morning, if we would follow the principle that is outlined here in this huge city in which we live, in which we are a part of, this thriving metropolis of Los Angeles metropolitan area, we need to be the kind of people who are minded and intended and and purposely looking and aiming to build churches in the midst of where people congregate. Now, the last time I checked the numbers of the total population of our area, the numbers run something like 20 million people. And among those 20 million people, we have the highest concentration of unchurched people in North America. That means that in every which direction you go in this massive city, you will run into people who don't know the Lord and who don't go to church. And yet you find very few Reformed churches. If you were to put up a map of the greater Los Angeles area and you were to put a dot where the Reformed churches are, the confessionally Reformed churches, it would look like very few dots and it would take large leaps to go from one area to the next. You think about it, if we set up a modest goal of reaching our area and saturating it with churches according to the model of the Levitical distribution of the cities, and we aimed at merely reaching 1% of 20 million people, that would amount to 200,000 Reformed Christians in Los Angeles. 200,000. And if you were to divide that number by 200, let's say that the average church had 200 members in it. Do you know how many churches it would require to build in this area? 1,000. In other words, we have our work cut out for us here if we are to model this uh, distribution and this principle of being among the people that we are to reach. And yet, that's exactly what I believe the word of God would have us do by way of application as we see how God distributed these cities among the land where the people were. And so Levi comes to receive their inheritance, and it's a very generous inheritance by uh, any standards at all, because when you realize that uh, Levi basically was disqualified for an inheritance at all, The question that we ought to be asking here is we come to chapter 21 and we see these Levites standing at Shiloh um, petitioning for cities. According to the command of God, we ought to ask the question, why is it they're petitioning for cities? After all, the rest of the tribes, when they came to Shiloh to uh, seek their inheritance from the Lord through Joshua, they all came petitioning Joshua for lambs. But here they don't do that. Here they simply petition for cities. And the reason why they petition for cities is because uh, hundreds of years before, Levi, Jacob's son, had disqualified himself from inheritance at all. As Jacob was dying and as Jacob was blessing his sons, he said this about Levi. He said, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. And he says, let my glory be united, let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men. And then he goes on to say, cursed be their anger for its fierce, and in their wrath for its cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. You see, as Jacob was dying, as he's blessing his sons, he comes to Levi, and he says, you're not going to get any inheritance at all. The future of Levi is to be a stranger, to be a wanderer, and to be homeless. You see, it's only by the grace of God that they ever end up getting any portion of an inheritance within Israel. And one reason why they are enabled to uh, lay hold of at least cities and pasture lands as an inheritance is because of their performance of fighting against idolatry in Exodus chapter 32. You remember there, as Israel rebelled, as they made the golden calf, Uh, Moses came running down the hill. After hearing of the, uh, the idolatrous and debaucherous party going on, he runs down the hill and to see uh, Israel engaged in its act of idolatry, and he draws a line in the sand, and he says, whoever is with me, stand on this side, pick up your sword, and march to the camp, killing people. And on that day, when idolatry broke out in Israel, it was the Levites. who stepped across the line, shoulder to shoulder with Moses. And we're told that that day they struck down 3,000 of their own brothers and killed them. At the end of that episode, we're told that Levi would be blessed. Well, at the end of Moses' life, as he was distributing blessings to the tribe, it's finally recorded that Levi will receive an inheritance of cities. And that's going to tie right into this whole business of city of refuge now. Because out of that allotment of cities would be these cities of refuge. And in an ironic providential twist, these former killers, Levites, will now be hosts to accidental killers in the cities of refuge. Very interesting how these ideas are intertwined and bound together in our chapters here, and that brings us now into the question of, of what's going on with these cities of refuge. And you turn back to chapter 20, you see here that these cities of refuge uh, have been commanded by God. It says in verse 2 I Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge for which I spoke to you through Moses. A number of times in the law, you will read about the designation of these cities. Initially, in Exodus chapter 21, it appeared that the place of refuge would be the horns of the altar. It says there that if anybody has uh, slain another man, he is to run to the altar and is to lay hold of the horns on the altar. And then it was established that that killing was an accidental killing. Then that person who had grabbed hold of the horns of the altar would be given uh, permanent immunity. Uh, later on in Numbers 35, uh, the Lord spells out in great detail uh, who may flee to the city of refuge and who may uh, properly and rightly and legally enjoy refuge there. Uh, Deuteronomy 19 also spells out some of the principles, but uh, not as in great detail. So first of all, the law provided for these cities. And secondly, uh, the law provided that these cities would be strategically placed. If you read through uh, the various law codes on these cities of refuge, one of the things that you're impressed with is that anybody who really needed refuge could find it. Anybody who really needed refuge because of an accident, because of an accidental killing, could quickly and easily find one of the cities of refuge. On one side of the Jordan, on the east side, there were three cities strategically placed where the tribes were. On the west side of the Jordan, there were three cities strategically placed where anybody could find those cities and get to them within at least a day's journey. In fact, God went out of his way to make it easy for people to access these cities because he commanded that roads, good roads, would be built and maintained to all of the cities of refuge. Fascinating that the Lord would provide in that way. But here as you come to our chapter, as you see how it develops these cities of refuge, it adds and and omits certain things that you may find in other passages, because it's assuming uh, that you would have some familiarity with the law on this. uh, You see here that the first main thing that is referenced here about these cities of refuge is that it's a place of refuge for somebody who is being pursued by the avenger of blood. Look at verse 5. It says, If the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. But you see here, these cities were designed to be a place of refuge for people who were being pursued. And the venger of blood was most likely the a, a closest male relative to the person who was slain. This is not vigilante justice. Uh, this is the evidence of a less organized uh, political system, basically. But the thing of it is, is if uh, your brother or your cousin was killed by somebody accidentally, that avenger of blood was obligated to chase down the killer whether he had a chance to, to determine the facts or not. He was obligated under the law to track that person down and to kill him without asking any questions. And so what you might see here behind this is the picture of somebody who has gone out of the forest, as the law gives illustrations, of somebody gone out of the forest with an axe with his friend, uh, to go chop wood, and the axe handle flies off in the middle of chopping wood, and the head lodges uh, within that person, striking a critical wound, and now that person is running as fast as he can to the city of refuge, and hot on his heel is this avenger of justice. And so when that person comes to the city, we're told in verse 5, that city was to be a refuge for him, and then in verse 6 it spells out what kind of person can get refuge in that city. It says, he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who is the high priest. And then the manslayer shall return to his own city, into his own house, into the city which he fled. And here we get into the issue now who may take refuge and safety in this city. In order to get refuge in that city, you had to go stand before the elders and you had to make your case right outside the city gates To see whether the elders were going to let you into the city of refuge. And the law specified uh, how those elders were to make the judgment. And they distinguished between two kinds of killing. They distinguished between the accidental killing, which we've just spelled out as as it wasn't premeditated. They weren't lying in wait. It was purely an accident, maybe an accident of negligence, but still it was an accident. and, And somehow that person dies. But then there was also the other concept, the other kind of killing, which was intentional murder. The law really gave us a whole series of illustrations to help the people who were set up to judge in between uh, these circumstances. And so if you read Numbers 35 and you want to check that out later this afternoon, you'd find that they give a whole series of illustrations of what constitutes intentional murder. He says, if he struck somebody with an iron object so that he died, the murderer shall be put to death. If he struck him with a stone in the hand by which he will die, he's a murderer, he shall be put to death. If he struck him with a wooden object in the hand and he died, he's a murderer, he shall be put to death. If he pushed him out of hatred or threw something at him while lying in wait, and as a result he died, he shall be put to death. If he struck him down with his hand in enmity, as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. You see, the law wanted to make it clear that there are two kinds of killings. And if it's premeditated, if it's lying in wait, if it's with the use of an object, if it seems like there was in any way an intent to harm behind that action, then the person was considered a murderer and guilty of death. But the fascinating thing here, as you look at the description of this murder, what you also find is that the person who accidentally kills someone is still called or still uh, referenced with the same word for murder, Ratzah. In other words, the same word that is used in the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill, is the same word that you find here in verses 4 and 5 about the person who accidentally killed somebody. In other words, even though the law distinguished between intentional killing and unintentional killing, at the end of the day, the law did not see anyone as innocent. Even though the killing was accidental, the law still considered that accidental killer a killer. And that brings us to the last point that we want to see here in the cities of refuge before we wind down with application. Because he was still considered a killer, even though it was proved that he didn't do it with malice or forethought or design, he had to stay in that city now in verse 6 until the death of the high priest. Then it says the manslayer shall return to his own city and to his own house. In other words, that indicates, first of all, that that city was basically designed to function as a prison. And as long as the high priest was alive, that person could not leave the city and have any expectation that he would come back in that city alive. The law was specific, it was clear that the moment that person stepped even five foot outside of the city of refuge, if the avenger of blood was there, he had every right to kill that person. So the city functioned in some sense as not only a place of refuge, but also a place of restriction, of sort of a prison house. But it says here, when the high priest dies, he's free to go back to his own home. In other words, the high priest's death functioned as a sort of a ransom. Again, if you were to go back to Numbers chapter 35, what you'd find there is that uh, the law makes it clear that there is no ransom payment that can be made for killing. Uh, There were a number of instances when the law imposed the death penalty for certain kinds of sin, and if you had enough money under the law, you could gather that money together and then take it to the high priest, and that would function as a ransom. You did not have to be subject to the death penalty. But when it came down to killing Uh, The word of God said very clearly in Numbers 35-33 that no expiation can be made for the land, for the blood shed upon it, except for the death of the killer. Blood had to be shed. And the argument from Numbers 35 is that whenever blood was shed, whether it was accidental or whether it was intentional, it polluted the land and it covered the land in corruption and pollution. And that pollution had to be expiated either through the death of the murderer or, secondly here, through the death of the high priest. The high priest's death functioned like something of a ransom for that person. That high priest stood in the place as a substitute for that accidental killer. And God looked at that as expiation for the sin which he has committed. As you step back from all of those details here, with the city of refuge and who may enter and upon what basis and, and how many be released, you see here, as as you step back from it, that it's all designed uh, to weave and to, and to portray a beautiful picture of the gospel. If you stop and think about it, uh, A. A. Bonar, a great uh, Scottish preacher of the 19th century, first of all, made a whole series of applications. Uh, concerning the gospel from this passage, simply from the situation of the cities themselves throughout the land. He argued, so situated were these cities that any manslayer, when pursued, might find his flight directed and his escape assisted by the very nature of the ground on where they stood. In other words, he says the very positioning of the cities is a type of the gospel Freely held out. Then he goes through a whole series of examples of what he meant by that. He said all of these cities stood in the plain so that anybody who was guilty could run to them swiftly and speedily. And they didn't have to go through the obstacle of climbing hills or going through difficult places to find these cities. They could swiftly run there. Further, he adds that all of these cities were were positioned next to large hills so that from miles away it would be very easy for somebody who was running for their life to locate those cities. He also notices that all of the cities of refuge were easily accessible. There were no rivers. There were no major ravines or gulches or valleys. It was easy to get to them. They weren't obstructed. And so through all of these uh, details of the location of the cities, he basically argues that they are typologically pointing forward to the access that sinners have to the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the the very position of the cities were a picture of the free offer of the gospel. He argued that the church should take notice of the positioning of the cities and their accessibility as an argument for them to make the gospel of Jesus Christ easily accessible to anyone who is seeking to find it. And in other words, he says it's the church's obligation to remove any obstacles to Jesus Christ. It's the church's, the church's duty and obligation to so hold out the gospel to sinners wherever they are that anybody who wanted to find Christ could find it. Or to put it in the language of the canons of Dort, this gospel is to be preached to all persons promiscuously and without distinction. In other words, One of the lessons that we learn here from the positioning of the cities is the church's obligation to go out into the world, to wherever the people are, whoever the people are who need Jesus Christ, and to openly proclaim the gospel and to make Christ accessible to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And to do that freely. No obstacles in the way of the preaching of the gospel. It's to go out into the world to tell people that all they have to do is run to Jesus Christ. There's no work to be performed. There's no duty to be performed. There's no cleaning up of the life that has to take place. All that the sinner has to do is come to Jesus Christ because he's being freely offered in the gospel. And to hold out that gospel freely and sincerely so that all who would like rest because of a knowledge of their sinfulness, can find that rest easily in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, first of all, the cities of refuge typologically set forth the free offer of the gospel under the new covenant. But secondly, uh, this passage here, as it describes the cities of refuge, and uh, against the backdrop of other passages, such as Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, which spell out... uh, Various points concerning the cities of refuge. This passage also foreshadows or portrays the kind of person who may seek rest in Christ. It portrays the kind of person who may seek rest in Christ. People who are guilty. People who are sinners. People who are called killers. You see, whether it was accidental or intentional or not, the law made it very clear. Even that person who accidentally laid hands on somebody and killed them was guilty and was considered a killer. Not hard to move from that to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, then, is it? When Jesus says, you think that uh, the sixth commandment is just about laying hands on somebody and kill them, but Jesus goes beyond that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, and he says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And he says, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. And what Jesus was saying, he says, you people are focusing on the external actions. You're focusing on whether it's accidental or unintentional. And Jesus said, what you need to do is look at the heart. Because this is what murder is. It's any ill intention that you have against somebody else. That's what thou shalt not murder is. The Sixth Commandment is not simply about laying hands on somebody, it's about the attitude of the heart. It's about the disposition which you have some, against somebody. It's about the bad attitude, it's about the jealousy, it's about the anger, it's about the evil impulses that you have within them. And he says, that's the kind of person who is a violator of the Sixth Commandment. You step back from that, you begin to realize that the person who is fleeing for his life because the avenger of blood is in hot pursuit and he's running to the city of the refuge is you. The person who's standing outside and knocking and pounding for his dear life outside the city of refuge is you this morning. It's not simply somebody who by accident caused an accident to Lodge in the heart of somebody and they died. It's you who have evil and sinful and jealous and angry dispositions and attitudes towards other people. It's you who tear down people with harsh words. It's you who gossip about people. It's it's you who have any ill intentions towards anyone. It's you who would scream out in anger, you're a fool. That's the person who's being typologically portrayed as finding rest here. You see, you know, when you sanitize sin and make it just for bad people who do a few bad external things, the gospel becomes very irrelevant. One reason why the gospel has been made irrelevant to the world in which we live is because the church has for too long preached an irrelevant law preach a user-friendly, self-help law, an external righteousness law, a pharisaical law that really had nothing to do with the law in the Bible. It didn't take its cues from Jesus in terms of how he interpreted the law and showed that it had deep, searching spiritual assessments of people. And because we didn't preach the law correctly and we made it about a few external issues, the gospel becomes irrelevant. People don't really need Christ that bad? Because they're really not that bad. But if you understand the law the way Jesus does, that if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you're guilty before the court. If you understand sin as the Bible understands sin, then you understand this morning that you have blood on your hands too. You understand this morning, if you read the law Uh, like Jesus proclaimed it, you sit here with blood on your hands. And you should also understand that if you sit here with blood on your hands because you have evil intentions or bad feelings or attitudes towards people, that there's no way of finding forgiveness of that except through Jesus Christ. You see, just like the killer here who was fleeing for his wife could could not offer a financial compensation, he couldn't point to to past good deeds or anything else that he had done to, to deliver him from the avenger. But it's the same with us. If we understand the law correctly. We understand that this city of refuge is for us in Jesus Christ. One of the great things that. You see, throughout the New Testament, too, when people start to understand their sins properly, is that they come to Jesus Christ, and it's fascinating to take note in the New Testament of the kind of people who find themselves around Jesus Christ. So you know, Jesus launched his ministry. He told the religious elite and the establishment of his day, he said, I didn't come for you. He said, the people who aren't sick don't need a physician. He said, I came to... Help people who are really in distress. I came to to help sinners. I I came to offer life and salvation to people who knew they needed it. And so what do you find around Jesus? I mean, it's certainly got to be scandalous to us to read the kind of people who were around Jesus and follow him. Tax collectors, prostitutes, known open sinners, found their way to Christ because Christ came for those kind of people. To the kind of people who were tired of hiding their sins. To the kind of people who were worn out by, by weighing out their righteousness, nickel by nickel by nickel, thinking that if they added up enough nickels, they'd get to the right amount of righteousness that God would finally accept. Those are the people that Jesus came for. That Jesus came for the people who knew their sin. And so you find him surrounded by some of the shadiest figures as you can imagine. So much so that Jesus himself was called a drunk and a friend of publicans and sinners. Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, as he's preaching the gospel, with great boldness and zeal, because of the great disruption that occurred from those cloven tongues of fire in the temple cried out to the people who were listening you nailed to a cross this man by godless hands and put him death." in other words what Peter did is he accused 3,000 people there of being killers we're told on that day they repented and believed and turned to Christ for salvation Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6 a passage we often turn to where he Cites a whole series of kinds of sins, from, from idolatry to drunkenness to theft. And he says, such were some of you. The fascinating thing is, you look at the Bible in the New Testament, what you find is not a bunch of cleaned up, sanitized looking people. It's sinners. So found refuge in Jesus Christ. Just like you see here in the killer. Who found refuge. In Joshua 20, in the city of refuge. People of God, the kind of people who came to this city, sinners, are a type of the kind of person who comes to Jesus Christ in the new covenant. The kind of person who is in sin is guaranteed salvation in Jesus Christ. And finally and lastly, this passage points to Christ and his gospel most directly and most obviously in the connection made in verse 6 that the person who finds refuge in that city will be released upon the death of the high priest. And we ought to explain to you the rationale behind that because the priest's life functioned as a ransom for that person's life. But how much clearer picture of the gospel could you possibly receive than the high priest's life being seen as a ransom for a sinner. That's, that's the gospel summarized in the New Testament. How many times do you come across the apostolic summary of the gospel as Christ died for you? No better passage to illustrate that than Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that we, well we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know how you come with a better picture of that. In Joshua chapter twenty, verse six, the high priest's death functioning as a ransom for a killer. That's what Paul is saying in Romans five. While you are yet killers, while you are yet sinful, while you are yet idolatrous, while you are yet selfish, while you were yet living in sin, Christ died for you. You see, Christ is the fulfillment of this refuge. He is the fulfillment of that high priestly death as a ransom. He is the one who delivers and redeems and frees us from sin and its penalty. And so the obvious call of the passage for even Christians as they walk away from this is to embrace the refuge. And not an Old Testament city scattered on the plains of, of Palestine. But Christ. To flee to Christ. Even sinners are to do that. Even Christians are to do that. My favorite phrase is in all the confession is in the Canons of the Door, chapter 5, article 2, where it says, in view of the sins which still cling to us... Christians ought to humiliate themselves daily and then flee to Christ as a refuge. Are you doing that? You are to flee to Christ as a refuge. And just as those Old Testament killers who received refuge in that city, not by compensating for it, so, this morning we must be realized that we receive Christ not by being compensated or not by compensating God by our good deeds or our prayer lives or our devotion or our good family values, but we cling to this refuge by faith. May all of us this morning cling to this refuge. And flee to this refuge and hold fast to Jesus Christ and to him alone. Let's pray.